All right. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. And this morning we're probably going to be talking about one of the most well-known... You can turn this down just a smidge, Jason. It might drive me crazy. Um, one of the most well-known uh, stories in the Old Testament. Um, it's definitely was at one point in time, every time we would open the Bible in our home, our girls wanted to hear the story of Jonah and the whale, or a big fish, depending on who you are. And I mean, everybody loves a, a good fish story, right? You know, if you've, if you've, ever, if you've never caught a big fish, here's, here's a secret I'll, I'll share with you. If you've never caught a really big fish, talk to Jimmy and Charlotte Park. They've got this beautiful little farm in Fayetteville, and they have the smallest ponds with the biggest fish I've ever seen. You know, six-year-olds are pulling out bass about as big as my forearm, like, like in 10 seconds or less. So anyway, if, if you want a good fish story of your own, talk to them. Uh, if, if you want to, to look at the word this morning, uh, and turn to Jonah chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're continuing our series in evangelism. And uh, today's message is entitled, The World's Worst Missionary. Okay? And, uh, and you'll see what I mean if you're not familiar with the, with the story of Jonah. Uh, but if you would, let's stand together. Uh, I'm going to read God's word. We'll pray. And then we'll get into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word. Or that you would use this time this morning to speak to us. That we might see your goodness. That we might experience your mercy. Lord, and that we can be sure that your plans are perfect and cannot be thwarted. So we ask you would bless our time here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Jonah chapter 1, and I ask you to remain standing as I read this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God." Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of this, because of me, that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it you please, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. As I already stated, and I think you probably would recognize, this story of Jonah is one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. One of the most well-known stories definitely in the Old Testament. It's beloved by kids. I think we've even got like Jonah and the big fish up on the wall of the nursery downstairs, which is sort of interesting when you think about really what the, the story is about. Um, but, but everybody loves to, to think about Jonah, and, and really this is also kind of exhibit A for a lot of people of why they think the Bible isn't trustworthy. You, you, you open up and you, and you get to this story, and you think, there's no way possible that this could be true. Like, it would be impossible for a person to actually survive inside of whatever you want to think of this. Is this a whale or a shark or maybe a whale shark or some sort of dinosaur thing that we haven't discovered yet? Um, it would be impossible to survive for three hours, let alone for three days, right? And a lot of modern critical Bible scholars would definitely argue that Jonah was never intended to be understood as a historical narrative at all. Instead, they would claim that this is sort of a historical fiction, um, more similar to a parable. Uh, that in, in order to teach us lessons about obedience and, and listening to God in kind of a fun and memorable way, and, and I think if you're a parent, you might, you might like the story if you're just going to say, hey, listen to me or else I'll, I'll feed you to the fishes, right? <laughs> now, I don't think we really have time to do a really deep dive uh, into all the reasons why that we should consider this to be historical as opposed to a work of fiction, um, and, and some people would argue it doesn't even really matter, you know, as long as we kind of learn our lesson. Um, but, but if that's the camp that you find yourself in this morning, let me just say this. Um, or maybe you know someone that, that uses the story of Jonah as, as like their illustration exhibit A as to why they can't trust the Bible. Um, let's just provide a, a few quick reasons as to why I think that we should believe this narrative as a history. Well, the first is that good interpretation always starts with understanding how an author intended their writing to be understood. And we find out that Jonah does not present itself as a parable or as fictional. You know, what happens if I start a story once upon a time? The next words I'm going to be saying are what? A fairy tale, right? That's going to be a fiction. Or or how about if we say... um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? We understand that this is going to be a sort of a fictional make-believe, hopefully a fun story, although the newest ones maybe not quite as great as the older ones, but that's um, up to debate. You know, in the same way, just like fairy tales, parables all kind of start in the same way. They're never specific. Here's how Jesus starts his parables. He says, there once was a man, and that was talking about the introduction of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The very next chapter, in Luke chapter 16, and there's, there's a parable of a dishonest manager, and it says there was a rich man. See, biblical parables don't use proper names, uh, with one notable exception, which we can talk about later. Um, 
And, and, and they, they don't include specific places or specific dates. They're just very open-ended. It's very obvious from the beginning of a parable that this is a story that isn't necessarily true. Now, it's not to say that it's not presenting itself as false, but this is a story that teaches a lesson. But how does the book of Jonah begin? We just read it. Let me remind you. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. So this isn't the opening of a parable or of historical fiction. This is the opening of a prophetic book. And here's a couple other openings of other prophecies found in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham. Or Habakkuk 1, when we read the, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. One more, Zephaniah 1, when the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. So we could go on throughout all the minor prophets, but you get the idea here that, that Jonah opens like a prophet and not like a parable. And as such, we should understand it accordingly. A second, just another word of warning, if we dismiss as fiction or false everything that doesn't have a clear or obvious explanation, we're really at, miss, at risk of completely dismissing God altogether. You might remember that in his copy of the New Testament, Thomas Jefferson famously took a, a pair of scissors and a little razor blade, and he cut out, physically removed from his copy of the New Testament, every single instance of something miraculous or supernatural or even a prophecy that was fulfilled. Anything that didn't have a logical or reasonable scientific explanation. As a result, when you see Jefferson's Bible, there's no virgin birth, there's no fulfillment of prophecy, there's not even a resurrection of Jesus. So sometimes we think, and, and this is sort of true actually, that it's okay, you don't have to believe everything the Bible says in order to be a Christian. And, that, and that's kind of true. So don't hear me say, if you don't believe Jonah is a, is a historical account, that you can't be a Christian. Okay, we're not saying that. Um, Jonah is not the litmus test of historic Christian orthodoxy. However, in regards to Scripture, um, you don't have to have accepted everything in order to become a follower of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I'm not sure if I can believe this story, you're still welcome to come here. In fact, I would say that you're probably welcome to express your doubts, although you know, sometimes we get a little squirrely when people say that they start doubting things, uh, even though we all honestly have our doubts about different things in life and in Scripture. But just consider this a word of caution, that if by default we just dismiss everything that's supernatural, or everything that, that we can't easily explain then we'll find ourselves explaining away Jesus, who is the heart of the gospel. If it's difficult to believe that a man survived inside of a fish for three days, how can we possibly believe that a man raised himself back to life after three days of being dead? I think the fish story is a little bit easier for me to believe, honestly. And then speaking of, of raising from the dead, the third and final reason I think that we should accept this is that, jo that Jonah actually happened, is that Jesus himself accepted the account of Jonah. <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, outside of, outside of the book of Jonah, the only reference that we have, um, we have one reference in the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, and the only other place that Jonah is referred to in all of Scripture is by Jesus himself on multiple occasions. Jesus referred to Jonah as one who prefigured his own resurrection, and Jesus even said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And if we profess to believe in Jesus, then we should strive to believe the things that Jesus believed. So, so all that said, what exactly do we know about Jonah the prophet or Jonah the man? And, and the answer quite really is not a whole lot. The, the information we have is, is really just from that very beginning of this book. So we see that he's the son of Amittai. He's a prophet. And a prophet, if you don't remember, is one who speaks to the people on behalf of God. And in 2 Kings, we find out that he's from Gath Hepper, which is in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is after the people of Israel have been divided into two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Israel in the north, and there's the kingdom of Judea in the south. And Jonah is from the north. He lived and served during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who had some military success against the Assyrians, although he himself, as we find out in 2 Kings 14, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so for a time, he was able to sort of hold back this impending Assyrian invasion. Sorry. The events of Jonah uh, of this book would have taken some time, taken place sometime uh, in the 50 to 70 years prior to the Assyrian invasion of Samaria, which happened in 722. And, and one other thing we know about Jonah, and this is my contention this morning, is that he was probably the world's worst missionary. And then that's all we really know about this guy. So in the rest of this morning, we're going to look at this world's worst missionary. And now you may not be aware, but there are a surprising amount, there is a surprising amount of competition for this title as far as terrible missionaries are concerned. Okay, and and uh, Dale and Carmen are laughing and they work with missionaries and they could probably tell a whole lot of stories that we don't have time for here. But, but that's actually very true. See, depending on, you ask, on who you ask, missionaries actually get blamed for quite a lot of bad things in the world. Okay, if, you, if you look through it, missionaries get, get blamed for um, neocolonialism, the spread of communicable and deadly diseases, uh, creating systems of dependency, objectifying the, the poor through voluntourism. There's been entire books written, including When Helping Hurts and Toxic Charity, which talk about the, the unintended consequences that missionaries have done to communities that they have been trying to help. There's one particular account that's rather striking of a, of a church in South America who gets these mission teams of teenagers to come down every summer. And week after week, those uh, mission teams, because that church wants the teams to come down, and every time they come down, they'll contribute some money, and they'll help kind of keep up the ministry of that church. But the, the teenagers, believe it or not, aren't, don't have a lot of skills. Uh, so they don't have a whole lot that they can offer. So what this one church had decided to do was they had a wall that they would get every mission team to repaint every week. So one team would come and paint it red, the next team would come and paint it blue, the next team would come and paint it orange. Meanwhile, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars bringing teenagers down to serve in South America. That would almost be funny if it wasn't true, right? Like, there have been so much, so many things happen, so many efforts in the name of Jesus that really just haven't worked out the way that people had thought. But no matter how unsuccessful those efforts could be, at least we could say about them, that somebody somewhere probably had a heart for the people that they were trying to help. See, someone was responding to the call of God upon their hearts. So those efforts at least arose out of an attempt at obedience. But then we look at Jonah and we say, not, not him, right? Not at all. As we're going to discover, God uses even the worst missionaries and the worst evangelists to accomplish his purposes. And there's, there's three reasons for that. And here's the three things I would like you to walk away from uh, 
this morning with. The one is that we cannot outrun the presence of God. The second is that we cannot outsend the mercy of God. And the third, we cannot outmaneuver the plan of God. Okay, so, so first one, we cannot outrun the presence of God. See, in the opening lines of this book, Jonah, the prophet, who is, again, the one who enters into the presence of God and speaks to the people on behalf of God, hears the audible voice of God commanding him to get up and go to Nineveh and call out against it. And how does Jonah respond? It says that he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So we have Jonah, this prophet from, of Israel, north of Jerusalem, is called to go to Nineveh, which is the northeast of Jerusalem. And when God calls him, instead he goes down southwest to Joppa in order to get on a boat going far west across the Mediterranean to Tarshish. Okay, Jonah, here's my contention, Jonah was not directionally challenged. He didn't confuse his north and south like some of you may do when you drive around the square. Okay? He, he knows exactly where God is calling him to go. And instead of going one way, he goes in the exact opposite direction to try to flee as far as he can away from God. Jonah, the world's worst missionary, was running away from the people that he was called to go to. But really, he was running away from God. And, and, and how can we run away from God? Well, we can't, right? You're probably familiar with Psalm 139. This is the Psalm of David, and it reads, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and the dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So how do we flee from the presence of God? Well, the answer is that we can't, right? We can't go to heaven because he's there. We can't go to hell. Apparently he's there too. We can't go to the sky, the sea, the morning, the night, the darkness, or even to Nineveh. He's already there, and he knows what's happening in that place. So we have this tendency to read Jonah and think, what a fool. Right? How could anyone, particularly God's prophet, think that they could possibly escape the presence of God? Because God's everywhere. It's one of those omnis that we talk about, right? This omnipresent, like that God is everywhere always, that, that we can't escape him. And yet... If we're honest, how many of us have tried in some form or fashion to do the same thing ourselves? Right? How many of us have avoided going to church or avoided spending time in prayer or avoided reading God's word because we're trying to keep away from God? We're trying to hold ourselves back from him. How many of us have told ourselves, as long as nobody sees me and nobody finds out what I'm doing, you know, I, can, I can kind of do whatever I want, whether it's in my room at night, whether it's what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Right? Or what, what happens in college stays at college. Or maybe what happens online stays online. But what do we discover? Is that those things stay with us. Right? Those things that we think that we can keep away from God. And the, and the reality is we, we take our baggage with us wherever we go. Not only that, but God is there with us as well. So God knows and he sees and we can't run and we can't hide from him. Which brings us to number two. And this is a, a far better one, I think. 
is that we cannot out the mercy of God. So we see God's mercy here in three ways. His mercy for Nineveh, his mercy for these sailors, and also his mercy for Jonah, who is again, what, the world's what? Worst missionary. Okay, I'll ask again, you'll, you'll get it later. So why does Jonah flee from God's presence? Because God was sending him to Nineveh. See, God called Nineveh a great city in verse 1. And yet it's not great as in like good. You know, like that was a great job that you did there. But it was great as in size. But geographically, we find out later that it takes three days to walk across the city. And also in number, that there's 120,000, God says, who don't know their right hand from their left. See, Nineveh was a large and powerful city. It was greatly fortified. John Calvin says that the walls were 100 feet high and they were so wide that you could drive three chariots across the top of the walls side by side by side. That's, that's massive. Okay? And it was also great in terms of wickedness. There were these enemies of, of peace everywhere and they were particularly enemies of the people of God. They threatened the sovereignty of God's people. They showed no respect for human dignity. They were more than deserving of the justice and wrath of God. And that's what Jonah wanted for them. And Sally, Sally Lloyd-Jones, this is Jesus' storybook, but I remember I said we read that all the time. She calls them bad people doing bad things. That's how she describes the Ninevites. And really that's how we think of them as well. And that's certainly how Jonah thought of them. They were ruthless and cruel, and they appeared to be an unstoppable evil power. So when God calls to Jonah to cry out against it, Jonah immediately understood that God wasn't just going to bring his judgment upon Nineveh, but that he was going to give them an opportunity to repent. See, if God wanted to destroy a city, he didn't need to give them any warning at all. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, he doesn't come and give them a second chance. He pulls Lot and his family out, and then he just wipes it. Okay, a little flame-throwing action, if you want, in the Old Testament. But despite the great evil of Nineveh, God was still giving them an opportunity to avoid disaster. Jonah knew that, and Jonah hated that. Because these were people who deserved everything that they had coming to them. And yet God was merciful to them. Next, we find God's mercy for these sailors who are really just ignorant men. You know, in his haste to avoid Nineveh, Jonah just gets on the first ship that he can find going as far away as he can find. And what he finds is, is these sailors on board with him who were pagans who worshipped many other gods. You know, as this God hurled a, sea down on the, uh, a storm down on the sea, and in the midst of the storm, we said they all start praying to their different gods. And they come and they, and they, they find Jonah and he's asleep. And, and this, not, this is not like the sleep of the just. Okay, this is the sleep of the apathetic. Uh, the sleep of the despondent, that maybe the sleep of the depressed. Again, Jonah doesn't care. Jonah doesn't care what happens to the people of Nineveh. He honestly doesn't care what happens to the sailors. And he definitely doesn't care about what happens to himself at this point. We read earlier about Jesus asleep on the boat. That was not the same type of asleep on the boat that Jonah was. See, but the, although the sailors worshipped these other gods, they also showed a fear and respect from Yahweh. They actually call him by his covenant name and also for his people. They respected the people of God so much that they refused to throw Jonah overboard at first. Right? Instead, they're casting off their cargo and they're getting out their oars and they're trying to row through this raging storm to get back to shore. And then finally, after they relent and throw Jonah overboard, what happens? 
The sea dies down. And then the, the pagan sailors feared God and they worshipped after they saw the power of God. See, Jonah doesn't repent on the ship of his actions, but the sailors do. They repent of the worship of their false gods and they are now worshipers of the true God of the universe. The one who made the land and the sea. And now we're going to see God's severe mercy for Jonah. See, the Lord hurled this great wind on the sea. God sent the storm to awaken Jonah from his spiritual slumber and get his attention when, when God could have really just sunk the ship. Now, think how much shorter this book could have been if the ship sinks and everybody dies. Okay, that's, that's what my daughter wants. A movie where everyone dies at the end. And, and nobody is a hero, right? Yeah. It would have been a lot shorter. The whole book would be over in one chapter. And God could have picked somebody else and sent them to Nineveh. And that might have been a great illustration for those who might be tempted just as Jonah did. Right? But, but that's not the book that we have. But God is merciful. He's merciful to the wicked. He's merciful to the ignorant. He's also merciful to his disobedient servants. If you ask any teacher what they'd rather have, if they'd rather have someone that's ignorant straight out evil or someone that's just defiant to them, they would they'd probably pick any of the first two as opposed to someone who was just doing exactly the opposite of what they said. And as a result, third and finally, we, we find out that we cannot outmaneuver the plan of God. Like, we can't stop God's plan. We can't hinder God's providence. And we see that be, because of Jonah's disobedience. Okay, not, not in spite of his sin, But because of his sin, these men who did not know God come to faith. And they take their faith back with them to their communities and back to these places where they're serving these pagan gods and back to their families. And and they are now testifiers to the power of the God of creation in places where they would not have been. That's what God does with Jonah's Sin. If Jonah would have been obedient and gone straight to Nineveh, these men might have perished in their ignorance. And yet God uses even his disobedience. If you join us in uh, weekdays in the central office, which is our um, you know, weekday uh, cent- uh, Bible reading and time of scripture plan, we read this week, actually on Friday, Second Peter 3, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing or purposing or willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Bible says that God doesn't purpose or wish that any should perish, that his heart is is such that all would repent from their sin and turn back towards him. And we see that's not always our heart. And even though Jonah was a complete failure, yet God still uses him to bring mercy and salvation at just the right time to a people who are hungry to hear the word of God. Who again in turn go to their places and they have this story to tell of the God who rescued them. So this is the, this is the message that we carry today as, as missionaries. Those of us who are wicked, those of us who are ignorant, and those of us who are just flat out disobedient. Right? Our, our sin deserves death, but in the great mercy of God, he gives abundant grace that whoever confesses from their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. So we cannot outrun God, 
We cannot outsin God and we cannot outmaneuver his plan of salvation for us. Why don't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, today we're grateful for this account of Jonah. And, and honestly, Lord, I'm, I'm particularly grateful for his disobedience because it gives hope to us. Lord, those of us who have tried to run from you, those of us who have thought at one point in time that we have outsinned your mercy, Lord, those of us who have thought that, that somehow we've gotten ourselves outside of your plan for our lives, we see here that we can't do any of those things. We can't get away from you. We can't sin past you. And we can't thwart that which you have already planned. God, there's some hard lessons, I think, uh, for us in, in some of these things as we think about the things that, that have gone on in our lives and we wonder, have we messed it up too much? And yet the answer that we find at the cross is no. That, that Jesus took it upon himself. That Jesus made the way to the Father that all who come to you through him will be saved. So we rejoice in that this morning, Lord. We pray you would help us to carry this message, however wayward and, and, and wicked and ignorant that we have been. Lord, that you would use even our most feeble efforts to carry out your message to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.